Let's give our attention tonight to the reading of God's word from Romans chapter 2. Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Okay, skip down to verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is God's word. Hey, you know, one of my favorite, um, what I like to call gotcha moments in the Bible Um, happens when a certain prophet uh, from the Old Testament by the name of Nathan comes to confront King David. Do you remember this story? It's one of my favorites. Now look, before this moment when Nathan confronts him, King David has basically had a few months of a handful of things. First of all, he has slept with a married woman. Bad idea. He has gotten her pregnant. Equally difficult. He has had her husband, one of his closest uh, friends and most loyal military captains, killed. And he took the woman for his wife. Not a banner, few months there for King David, right? But instead of listing David's crimes, what Nathan does instead is kind of set him up by telling him this story of a great injustice that's been committed against a very innocent person in his kingdom. And so with all this like boiled up self-righteousness, King David announces, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, right? And you can almost see Nathan's little bony finger looking up at him when the old King James says, thou art the man. That's a great story, right? David is caught. Now look, though it's nowhere near as drastic as a story like that, 
I've actually had this in my own life, so I can know how arresting this is. My wife will enjoy this story since I'm getting it out. Um, in the very first year of Ginger and I's marriage, we were in the process of, um, one of the hard things you don't realize about the first year of marriage is you kind of have to divide up uh, household tasks. You, know, you tell yourself before you get married, it's like, we'll do it all together. No, you won't. You have to divide it up. And I had, with some measure of confidence, decided that I wanted to be the one who took out the garbage. Don't worry, honey, if it's smelly and gross, I'll take care of it, right? I was going to do this. Well, I was pathetically negligent at doing this chore. I can't really explain it, to be honestly. But finally, after you know days of exasperation on my poor wife's part and an overflowing you know, garbage bin, she finally, after asking me nicely at least like four or five times, you know, finally on my way out one morning, begs me to take out the garbage. Please, Les, could you just take the garbage to the end of the street? And so I just, I mean, I well up full of insult at this moment, you know? And I announced to her, <laughs> I was like, Ginger, I'm not an idiot, okay? I can remember to take out the garbage without you nagging me about it. Okay, fast forward to about 10 minutes from then. I'm on my way to campus. You know, I'm the RUF campus minister at Memphis. And my phone rings. I was like, hello. And she says, hey, do you remember to take out the garbage? I had forgotten again. 10 minutes later, I had forgotten for the umpteenth time. Apparently, it's more disturbing for you than it was for me. Um, embarrassing. It's a gotcha moment where you sort of suddenly feel like you are the one who's in total control. And boom, you're done. Look, y'all, we're discussing this semester how it is that we go about breaking up our boredom with Christianity. How do we combat that sort of, I've already heard all that version of religiosity. And there's nothing quite like a good gotcha story to sort of help break up our boredom. Because in Romans chapter 2, we find Paul describing one of the strangest of human tendencies, And that is the tendency to be critical of everybody except ourselves, right? You see, there's nothing more natural for us. After Paul delivers this devastating critique that he delivered last week, to sort of well up and be like, yeah, you go get them, Paul. You tell those people, those bad people, tell them like it is. But all of a sudden, the Apostle Paul then turns his little bony finger at you, and he looks and says, therefore, you have no excuse, you who judge. Look, Paul wants to describe for us two different kinds of judgmental people. They're the moralizing judges, and they're the religious judges. And both of them, in his mind, are in trouble. That's what I want to talk about tonight. First of all, Paul goes after the moralizing judges, okay? In other words, he's addressing the person who's sitting there and saying to themselves, Yes, Paul, well said. I concur absolutely with your judgment of the teeming, pathetic masses of people. I, like you, deplore and denounce all these same things. Now look, notice, these people might not actually be outwardly religious, but they sure do sound like they are. Um, you know, it's, uh, even those people who don't have any sort of formal association with religious teaching can be horribly judgmental. And Paul exposes their judgmentalism through two ways, 
two ways in which he goes about it, and it's fascinating to hear what he says. The first thing he judges them for is he says, look, um, I want to ask you a question. When you actually condemn others, do you do those same things? In other words, it almost sounds like Paul's being presumptuous when he looks and says, I want to show you that when you judge others, you're being a hypocrite because you do the exact same things. Now, look, when you first read this, you're kind of tempted to think to yourself, well, I mean, maybe, Paul, some of your listeners might be hypocrites, but you don't want to lump everybody into that category. But you know what? I've been thinking about this, quite honestly, for years, and I feel like that doesn't do justice to what Paul says here. Paul doesn't say there might be someone out there who is being a hypocrite. What he says is, if you judge other people, you're a hypocrite. Why? Because you do the same things. He doesn't say some of you do the same things. He says all of you do the same things. In other words, I think that the reason why Paul is saying that moral superiority is wrong is because no one is morally superior to anyone. End of discussion. In other words, what Paul says is when you condemn whatever you condemn in others, not you are capable of yourself, but that you are doing in some sense. <laughs> Look, y'all, in the past couple of years, there's been a rise uh, in the popularity of what I would refer to as kind of ultra-realistic cop dramas like The Shield or The Wire, if you're into the whole HBO thing, right? And when you watch these shows, you begin to realize something interesting about them. And I think it's one of the reasons why the critics have gotten so excited about them is because when they watch them, they look and say, now that's what people are like. Because in these shows, there are no good guys. There's nobody that you can look at and say, well, now that guy's got it going on. He's the hero. Dun, da, da, da. There's nobody riding in with a white hat on a horse. I think one of the reasons why those things have resonated with people so much is because it's true. <laughs> Paul is saying something profound when he says that there is not one person in this room who wants everything that they do and everything that they say and certainly not everything that they think to be known to all. Not one person. In other words, there is enough that is hidden in the life of every single person in this room to send you into the corner in shame. And he doesn't even try to explain that. I'm kind of offended by that. I mean, you want to sit there and be like, well, well you know, I know there's probably lots of other people that do that. I mean, the guy down the pew for me is probably like that. No, Paul's going, you do it. It's in your own heart. Stop lying. Stop lying to yourself and stop lying to other people. You're a hypocrite. Own it. <laughs> But then secondly, he looks, and Paul kind of envisions somebody saying, you know, you religious freaks, there you go again. All you're doing is talking about morality, and you're talking about this stuff that's simply culturally defined, and therefore it's just relative. Who are you people to say that anybody who does anything is wrong about anything? Well, in verses 15 and 16, Paul actually talks about the fact that that's really not the case. You may view yourself as being kind of above or outside any kind of religious stuff, but Paul says, no, you're really not that way. Because the truth is God has actually written his law on your heart. And when it comes down to it, in the form of your conscience, 
one day God's going to judge the secrets of men. There's a, a 20th century theologian who only died about 20 years ago or so by the name of Francis Schaeffer, who had a wonderful illustration that he referred to as the tape recorder illustration. Francis Schaeffer used to say that every human being from the moment of their birth has an invisible tape recorder hung around their neck that only turns on whenever you tell somebody that they ought to do something, right? And what you do is you imagine at this moment, Schaefer would say, that somebody would sort of object and be in heaven and stand before God in his judgment seat, and they would say, whoa, 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 God, come on. I mean, you didn't give me enough evidence to believe in you when I was on earth, you know? I mean, you can't judge me, you know, for having grown up in a place that never heard of you or your Bible or your Jesus. You can't do that. And what Schaefer says is that God is going to look at those people and say, you know what? You're right. That's not fair. It's not fair for me to judge you on the basis of information that you never knew. I'm only going to judge you by what's on your tape recorder. And of course, the person's like, what? There's a tape recorder. And it only turned on whenever you looked at somebody and said, you know what? That person ought to something, something, something. Well, oh yeah, well, they just need to dot, dot, dot. Well, this person over there better get a blank, 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 whatever. In other words, whenever you exercised or expressed any sort of judgment on somebody else, God says, I'm going to judge you by that standard. Anybody in here ready to sort of face the terrifying thought of what if God only judged me by the standards that I held others to? Every one of us would be toast regardless of your religious stance tonight. So Paul, first of all, says if you're a moralizing judger, you have no right. You can't do that. But then he goes after a second group because he turns his attention to Jewish people in particular. And, you know, because none of that is sort of um, feels like it applies to the final group that he's talking to there in verse 17. Because Paul is looking at the person who even up until this point during our discussion is saying to themselves, uh... Well, okay, yeah, Paul, right, I got you. But uh, what about the good people? I mean, what about the folks here, you know, who are in church and like, uh, you know, have quiet times and uh, they witness to other people and, and they don't drink like those bad people uh, and they don't sleep around and, you know, the Christian people. Paul looks up and addresses those people because he sees the Jewish people represented the religious form of judging. In other words, they were using their moral efforts and all of the things that they had done as leverage against God to say, you must approve of me because of these things that I do. And so once again, Paul has to get two things across to even these people. Okay? The first one, once again, is hypocrisy. He says, look, you're doing the same people, you're doing the same thing to religious people as you are to the moralizers. In other words, you don't like stealing? Well, let me ask you a question. Do you steal? And the implication is you most certainly do. <laughs> In other words, there's no escaping this principle, y'all. And I want, you, I want to let this wash over you for a second because some of you are still not buying it. Because oftentimes, do you not also often notice that some of the people that are the most vocally judgmental are themselves engaged in the very act that they're so carefully condemning? 
Paul is looking and saying, there is no one who doesn't have a body in their trunk. You're all guilty. Every single one of us is guilty of the same thing. To be honest with you, it's very difficult not to pick on very public cases like Ted Haggard. You know, the religious evangelical leader who spent most of his time decrying the the breakdown of the family and the rise of homosexuality. All the while, he's going into downtown Denver and seeing a homosexual prostitute. In other words, Paul is asking a question that I think we all have to honestly say. Be careful what you condemn in others. Because it's well within the realm of possibility, yea, absolutely the possibility, that you're doing the exact same thing. Secondly, though, Paul looks and says, in a very subtler way, he says, when you judge people, you do the same things. Now, you might wonder to yourself, what are the things that Paul's referring to there? Well, if you look at the context, I think he's clearly talking about the list that he just gave at the end of chapter 1 that we read last week. Envy, haters, uh, the boastful, the covetousness, uh, covetousness. Uh, The heartless, right? Um, But what's interesting about those sins that he lists is almost all of them are not what we would call external sins. Do you know what I mean by an external sin? That's something that someone can see you do. No, 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 no. In this list, Paul is talking about things that really are safe inside the confines of your own heart. In other words, they're sort of internal sins, the stuff that's on the inside. In other words, the tendency Paul is saying is that when you start to read what God expects of his people, we always want to externalize that stuff. We want to push it out and start to think to ourselves, well, you know, I mean, I ain't killed anybody. What are you talking about? Did I do this or did I do that? But Paul is coming along and saying that I want to do exactly what Jesus said. Because Jesus comes along and says, look, it is not enough to say to yourself, do not murder. Because I'm going to tell you that if you hate someone in your heart, it's the same thing as murder. <laughs> now look, you know, talk about how to break up you know, the sort of boredom with Christianity. Look, y'all, um, no one believes this. I'll be perfectly frank with you. You would be hard-pressed to find anybody who actually thought in their minds that hatred is the same thing as actual murder because it comes from the same root. In other words, in my opinion, this is one of the most offensive parts of Christianity, that God is going to judge people on the basis of their motives, whether it came out in real life or not. Look, i got to be honest with you. Jesus and Paul are presenting for the world an extremely radical version of a moral vision that looks beyond just your external behaviors and gets to the stuff inside. It's a moral vision of a humanity that doesn't have to fake it, that has integrity or wholeness at its center. Look, in a couple of months, we're all going to be able to go out to the grove and watch the grove transform from the cold, kind of muddy mess that it is to the wonderful springtime grove that we all know and love so much. But it's really a lot of fun to kind of walk around and pick up the acorns. You notice those kind of laying around when it comes to springtime? Because you look at that acorn and you start to think to yourself, inside this tiny little thing that fits between my fingers is the potential for this giant tree 
You see, what Paul and Jesus are saying is, just because your acorn didn't grow up to be the big tree of of, of incredibly destructive behavior, doesn't mean that you lack the talent to do so. It all comes from the same root. Paul is saying that you are not allowed to look and refer to those people because essentially there is no difference. I heard Tim Keller do a sermon illustration one time about an English teacher who was talking about an essay that she had presented to her class about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, chapter 5 through 7, where Jesus delivers his incredible moral vision of the law. And she has her class read this sermon. And she said at the end of the thing, they voted. And she said, who is it that liked the Sermon on the Mount? No one in the class liked it. It's terrible. It's awful. I read it. It was just guilt-producing. Nobody can lay that kind of yoke on somebody. That's crazy. But then in the very same class period, she then looked at him and said, okay, but how many of you wish that other people would treat you with the Sermon on the Mount in mind? Every single one of them said, oh, that would be nice. In other words, do you see the tendency? The basic human tendency is to be so skilled at being critical of everyone except for ourselves. Look, y'all, what Paul is trying to do is to say there are two ways to run away from God. You can run away from God with your irreligion, but it is just as easy, if not more easy and more dangerous, to run away from God with your religious activities. No one walks away from Paul's letter thinking to themselves, I'm doing okay. Nobody does. Now, you know my tendency. I always try to look and leave you with something that you can look forward to and say, ah, there is a way through this. And to be honest with you, it comes to us in the very last few verses that I read. Because not only do we hear Paul talking about moralizing judges, not only does he talk about religious judges, but he talks about the cut-off judge. Look, I warned you that we're going to have to go through some dark times. We've got one more next week before we get to the sunshine afterwards. But they can be sometimes feel like they're devoid of hope. But when Paul gets down to the discussion about, of all things, circumcision, he offers a ray of hope. And you might have missed it as your first reading. In verse 25, he says, look, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And you're thinking to yourself, what is Paul talking about, right? Well, look, let me see if I can explain. And bear with me for a moment. When God called the first Jewish person, it's a guy by the name of Abram, who later changed his name to Abraham. He told Abram that he wanted for him to apply a physical sign on his body uh, of what was supposed to be happening uh, inwardly inside his heart. In other words, the sign of circumcision, if you don't know what circumcision is, you can ask somebody after RUF. He says, I want that to be a sign of a reality that I'm going to bring inside your heart. And to be honest with you, my suspicion is that Abraham probably wanted an explanation. Um, You want me to do what, God? That kind of thing. Now look, in order to understand these bizarre Old Testament experiences, you have to understand that in the ancient Near Eastern times, people did not have contracts that they signed 
When you wanted to create sort of a bond or a connection between you and another person, you didn't sign a contract. What you did is you made something called a covenant. A covenant was something that you made. And instead of signing it, you actually ended up putting on a little ceremony. Kind of like a, um, a marriage covenant for us, right? We have a little ceremony that we put on. For instance, somebody might, uh, you know, maybe pick up some dirt off the ground, right? And throw it into the air and say, uh, may I blow away well, like this dust if I ever break this agreement, right? This may sound silly to you, but it was fairly dramatic to these people, right? In other words, what God is saying is, is I want the physical sign to enact the curse of what would happen to you if you break the covenant. Did you catch that? That's important. You need to hear that again. What God was saying is, is I want the ceremony that you put on to be a little enactment, if you will, of what's going to happen to you if you break this promise. So God was saying to Abraham, by being circumcised, you are admitting that if you disobey this covenant, then you deserve to be cut off, cast out, shut out forevermore. Now, you may look to you and say, well, that's all very interesting, Les, but what's the point? Well, the point is the problem. Because if you go back and read the Old Testament, do you want to know what the Old Testament is about? I can tell you pretty simply. I can sum it up in one sentence. No one keeps the covenant. Nobody. There is nobody in the Old Testament who comes away unscathed. Everybody gets dirt reported about them. Even King David, the greatest king in Israel, Jewish history. Even he gets his poor name dragged through the mud. Why? Why does that happen? You end up finding yourself at the very end asking the question, can anybody really know this God if they continue to keep breaking this covenant? Well, that's why Paul comes along and gives you an answer. By talking about circumcision. Now in Colossians chapter 2, he gives us a much more explicit answer. Listen to this. In verses 11 and 12, he says, In him you were also circumcised. Now mind you, he's talking to Gentiles who are like, I don't think I was circumcised. It's something I probably would have remembered. Okay? I don't remember that happening. And Paul looks as an explanation and says, No, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By the putting off of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. What's he saying? He's saying, look, the metaphor of having something cut off was pictured in Christ being cut off on your behalf. He was the one who was shut out. He was the one who was cast off on the cross. So that in the, in the time, he could actually keep you as a part of himself. Look, y'all, the beauty of this passage is Paul is predicting a time when God would actually have come along. And it already happened by the time he was writing this. And he would say, the gun of judgment is on you too, you judgmental person. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn the gun on myself. And I'm going to take that punishment. I'm going to be cut off. So that in the end, I can keep you from judging other people. Jesus comes in and offers himself as being cut off on your behalf so that you can stop writing people off on your behalf. It begins to erode our judgmentalism when the gospel really gets into us. Y'all, this changes everything. Jesus was the judge who was judged so that we could stop judging. 
Jesus was the judge who was judged so that we could stop judging. You know, I heard a speaker a couple of years ago talk about how irritated they were with Christianity because it had people who taught about a final judgment. And they're like, you know, final judgment just makes people more vindictive. If you believe that God's going to come and judge people, that's going to turn you into a judgmental person. I couldn't disagree more. My friends, when we look and realize that the great God of the universe is the one who is the only one who can truly judge with integrity, I don't have to hold grudges anymore. You want to know why? Because I know that he's got it taken care of. I now have a wellspring of patience that I didn't have before. Because the truth of the matter is, it's not up to me to judge you. I don't look down on you. I can't look down on you. First of all, I'm guilty of it all myself. Second of all, that's up to God and for him to settle out. And what that means is, for those of us that start to understand that and start to embrace that, God holds himself out and says, but look, if you'll come to me, I have dealt with that. I'm the judge who was judged so that we can stop condescending to each other. Look, you may not believe a word that I've said tonight, but you got to admit, that's a beautiful vision of life. The thought that there might be a people that would rise up, not looking down on each other, but longing to lift them up and show them good news. Don't you at least want that, even if you don't believe this? Consider that an invitation to look more into it. Let's pray. <clears throat> and Lord Jesus, would you deal with us and our judgmentalism? Would you deal with the fact that we wrestle every single day with looking at other people and thinking that we're above them, that they're beneath us? People who would come to a Bible study on Wednesday nights are people that are the most susceptible to that. And so, Lord Jesus, would you shine the light on our hearts so that we can stop looking down on others? That, Lord, you might give us the grace to look to you as the one who took our judgment so that we don't have to be so short with other people. Lord, in so doing, would you build an army of people who long to serve you and to welcome others in the same way that you do, that we, we would be willing to be cut off for their sakes, that we might be willing to suffer on behalf of them. It all sounds a little bit too good to be true, and so therefore you're going to have to be the one to pull it off. So Holy Spirit, would you work in us tonight, maybe some of us for the first time, For all these things we ask in Jesus' name, amen.